is Anwar Sawaya. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. It is good to see so many of you back in church this Sunday after you heard a series of messages about the book of, from the book of Zephaniah preached by Pastor Marwan. I was jokingly told by a friend, pastor of mine, that the fastest way to shrink a church is by preaching sermons about sin as it relates to the holiness of God, the judgment of God, the wrath of God, and repentance. Well, not to top Pastor Marwan, today I will be preaching a topical sermon that I have entitled, Are You a Christian Atheist? So we will see how many of you come back next Sunday. Of course, I'm just kidding, and I, have, I hope all of you come back. And by the way, I strongly recommend that if you weren't here for the series that Pastor Marwan preached, please listen to it. We have it uh, on our website. Well, before we dive into the sermon, let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us today. I pray that your Holy Spirit will help me to preach your word boldly and accurately. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will give us ears to, ear, uh, ears to hear and hearts to respond to your message. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early 90s, my wife and I led a campus ministry organization at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Typically, every fall, we used to have what we called a fall blitz. And what that meant is we engaged as a fellowship in a lot of activities designed to reach out to the students at the university. And one way we did that was door-to-door -door evangelism. We would knock on students' dorm rooms or campus student houses and share the gospel with those who were willing to engage with us. One day, me and a brother from the fellowship knocked on a door and a student opened it for us. We introduced ourselves and asked him if he had few minutes to talk to him about Christianity. He said he, that he was a Christian and welcomed us into his room. As we entered and looked around, we immediately noticed some inappropriate pictures of women all over his walls and empty bottles of beer and booze on his desk and table. As we started to engage in conversation with him, and asked him how he became a Christian, he told us that he attended an evangelistic crusade led by a fairly well-known evangelist. And towards the end of the meeting, there was an invitation to all who wanted to become Christians to come forward to the altar and make a decision for Christ. And he did so. And in his mind, he became a Christian. Upon further discussions, we found out that he never committed to a local church, never had a real change of his worldview, and never had a genuine godly transformation of his lifestyle. Being a Christian to him was a ticket to heaven, sort of fire insurance so he won't burn in hell 
rather than a true repentance, turning away from the world and following Christ as the Lord of his life. He was what I call a Christian atheist. This term may raise eyebrows or even confusion, yet it speaks to a profound spiritual reality that many of us might be unwittingly living out. Let me explain. Christian atheism, as in the case of this young man, is not a denial of God's existence, but rather a condition where one's belief in God or one's identification as a Christian does not fully translate into lived experience. It's a state where professed faith fails to impact every sphere of life, where God is acknowledged in theory but absent in practice. In essence, and at best, it's living as, as though God does not matter in our day-to-day existence, or at worst, as if he does not exist at all. Paul best defines Christian atheism uh, in Titus 1.16, where he tells us, here's a definition, they claim to know God, they claim, people claim to be Christians, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Before we look at the different causes of Christian atheism, let me make something very clear. No Christian, past, present, or future, will fully be consistent in their walk with the Lord. We will always struggle with sin, and at times fall hard. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 tells us, My little children, I am writing you these things that, I, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, did you hear that? There is an expectation that we'll probably sin as Christians. But if anyone does then sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. In fact, many of the heroes of the faith committed horrific sins. I can think of King David, who not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, but he also murdered her husband to cover it up. Also, I can, I can think of the apostle Peter, who denied Christ three times prior to Jesus' crucifixion. And yet, David was called a man after God's heart. And Peter went on to be a great apostle and a giant of the faith. So what gives? What's different? Well, what's different is that when these men were confronted with their sin, they acknowledged it, genuinely repented of it, and turned to God for forgiveness and strength. Moreover, their lives were marked by continued obedience and repentance till they die, till the end. Well, I hope this morning, if you are confronted with sin as you listen to God's word, that your response will be the same as King David and the Apostle Peter. 
one of genuine repentance and turning to God for forgiveness and strength to overcome your sin. Brothers and sisters, I, I trust that you will see that today's sermon is not meant to judge, condemn, or fill you with guilt. That's not, that's not the hope this morning. That's not uh, the goal of this sermon. But rather, it is a call to allow the Holy Spirit of God to examine our hearts and lead us to repentance if and when needed. Also, it is meant as a loving reminder or perhaps a loving warning from the Lord to us not to be seduced by the deceitfulness of sin, both in doctrine and practice. By way of introduction, let me share with you some shocking statistics related to Christianity in America. According to the 2022 Gallup poll, 65 to 70% of Americans identify as Christians, and yet only 15 to 20% reflect the moral values of Christianity in their daily lives. This is an indication of how prevalent Christian atheism can be. Now that we have defined what Christian atheism is, and for those who might be taking notes, and maybe kids also, you're, you're here today and maybe taking notes, I'd like to give you a three-point outline for the rest of the message. Three-point outline. One, causes of Christian atheism. Two, dangers of Christian atheism. Three, overcoming Christian atheism. Let me start with three causes of Christian atheism. I'm sure we all could think of many more, but for the sake of time, I'll only highlight those three. The first cause of Christian atheism is easy believism. Easy believism. Easy believism is a term often used to refer to a simplified or overly simplistic understanding of salvation and Christian discipleship. It is typically used to describe an evangelistic method and message that emphasizes a minimal approach to faith, focusing solely on a verbal profession of belief in Jesus Christ without true heartfelt repentance and without a commitment to a life of repentance, discipleship, obedience, and transformation. It is unlike what that young man that I mentioned in the introduction heard and experienced in the evangelistic event that he went to. Usually, the message includes some elements of the gospel, but not the complete gospel. Jesus loves you, and he died on the cross for you, they say. And all you have to do to be saved is make a decision for Christ and pray the sinner's prayer. The problem is that this message does not emphasize repentance 
or the necessity of commitment to the Lordship of Christ for those that Jesus is offering salvation to. True faith involves more than just mental agreement. The devil believes who Jesus is and he shudders, James tells us. But it includes recognition of our sinful state before the holy God, repentance from the way that we were living our lives, and a heartfelt trust and surrender to Christ as Lord and Savior. It is a profound and transformative experience that includes both belief and discipleship. A commitment, if you will, to following Christ in every aspect of life. As you remember from our study from the book of James several months ago, and specifically chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, James emphasizes the importance of good works as evidence of genuine faith. You hear this? James emphasizes the importance of good works as evidence of genuine faith and warns against a faith without works, without obedience. In other words, good works do not save us, but they are proof that we are saved. They gives us assurance of our salvation. In, in contrast, and as I have already mentioned, easy believism downplays the necessity of repentance and the lordship of Christ in our lives. Since the 1950s, the easy believism message has been widespread in evangelistic efforts in the United States and in other parts of the world. One could argue that it has produced the largest number of Christian atheists over and above the other causes that I will be sharing about in a moment. I have a, a, an assignment for our kids now. Okay, kids, are you paying attention? There's an assignment for you for this week. Kids, I want you this week to go to your parents and ask them what is the gospel to explain to you the good news about Jesus Christ, okay? And parents, please give them a complete message of the gospel. Explain to them as, clear, as clearly as you can the true message of the gospel, not the light gospel or easy believism gospel. So the first cause of Christian atheism is easy believism. The second is licentiousness. Licentiousness. Jude 4 says this, For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of God, of our God, into sensuality. Actually, I like the NIV translation better here because it says it turns the grace of God, of our God, into a license for immorality or a license to sin. And then it continues on to say, and denying Jesus Christ 
our only master and Lord. The logic of those who embrace such a view is something like this. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is absolutely true. As a Christian, and because of the grace of Christ, he has forgiven all our sins, past, present, or future. That is also true. We are now under grace and not under the law. True. Following the law will not save us or contribute in, in, in any way to our salvation. Also true. Since we are forgiven of all sins and are, are no longer under the law, then we are free to sin or to live our lives as we wish and not have to follow the law of God. Not true. Not true. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 15 through 18. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin. Do you hear that? You have, not, have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Do you hear that, church? Do you hear it? Not with natural ears, but with your spiritual ears. As Christians, we now have been set free from the slavery of sin and have the freedom to follow God's law. The grace of God ought to fuel in our hearts the love of God and His Word. It ought to fuel the love of God and the love for His Word. In John 14, Jesus said, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And again, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Jesus tells us, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, listen to this, church. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. True faith 
is proven by good works. Paul here is not telling us, or Jesus here is not telling us, that we need to obey the law in order to be saved. But he's telling us that those who are saved will follow the law, will be enslaved not to sin, but to righteousness. Big difference. Big difference. The grace of God and the power of God help us to inwardly delight in the law of God and not despise it. God's forgiveness should not give us a license to sin or to think that there won't be any consequences to our sins. No. True believers will have a strong conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit that leads to repentance and reconciliation with God rather than a casual or dismissive attitude towards sin. Licentiousness is, in fact, Christian atheism, and we need to fight against it. Again, the first cause of Christian atheism is easy believism. The second is licentiousness. And the third is what I call ministry idolatry. Ministry idolatry. Sister Reese already read to us from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. But I'd like to read it again because it is important to hear those words again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name Drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name. Then I, will now, then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from you, me, you lawbreakers. Those are terrifying verses. And to be honest, the first thing that comes to mind when I read these verses is the following names. Joel Olstein, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Paula White. These men and women are considered to be leaders of what is known as the prosperity gospel movement in the church. And maybe some of you are familiar with them. They claim that Jesus is their Lord and they speak in the name of Jesus, yet their teachings and their lifestyles say otherwise. They preach a gospel that promises health, wealth, and comfort rather than the true gospel that emphasizes repentance, faith, and transformation. They accumulate an ungodly amount of money primarily by manipulating the poor and vulnerable. They own huge mansions, fancy cars, and even private jets, claiming that God told them to buy these things. They live a life of a celebrity, of celebrities, having bodyguards travel with them at all times. Their ministries emphasize extra-biblical prophecies, deliverance from demons, and miracles that many times prove to be fake. They could care less about the sheep. Instead, they use the sheep 
to build their own kingdoms. Their God is really the ministry and accumulated wealth, and their accumulated wealth, and is not really Jesus Christ. One prosperity gospel preacher in Abu Dhabi said arrogantly to an ex-member of his church who, has, who had since joined our previous church that his goal was to become the richest pastor in the UAE. This is a true story. And he says that confidently and arrogantly. How sad. How sad. I cannot tell you the number of people from our former church, particularly Africans and Indians from India, who have been damaged by such preaching and how it has taken them years to get their financial and spiritual lives back in order. So as one of your pastors who truly loves you and cares for your soul, I have one word to tell you if you happen to listen to such preachers. Stop! You hear me? Stop, please. Their teachings are poison to your soul. Well, having said that, and as a person who has been involved in ministry leadership part-time for so many years, and now full-time here in Lebanon, I must admit that these verses from Matthew 7 shake me to my core. See, I love the ministry. And there were many times, especially in my earlier years, when my life seemed to, to revolve around the ministry more than the Lord Jesus Christ. During those times, if I'm honest, my intimacy with Christ and, de and my devotional times suffered because of my over-involvement in the ministry. At other times, my family suffered because I was not available to them as much as I should have because of the ministry. In fact, not too long ago, one of my sons and I were chatting and reminiscing about his childhood, and he said to me, you know, Dad, to be honest, I felt at times that you loved the ministry and the church more than you loved me. Ouch. No father wants to hear these words from his son. But yeah, I had to own up to it and ap apologize to him. I told him he's right, and I'm really sorry that I did not spend more time with you, especially when you needed me the most. Brothers and sisters, I've had to repent before the, before the Lord many times when I felt that the ministry is taking over my life and becoming an idol. And even today, I continually ask the Lord to protect and guard my heart from such idolatry. Ministry is a wonderful thing, don't get me wrong. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. We ought to do ministry until it becomes an idol. I have literally known many pastors and ministry workers who wrecked their lives 
and ruined their marriages because the ministry became the all in all to them. The last thing that I want is I is when I come face to face before the Lord to hear those dreadful words from my Lord. I never knew you. Hard words to hear. We better, we better heed to this warning now before we come before the judgment of seed of Christ and hear those dreadful words from the Lord himself face to face. We better heed to them now, brothers and sisters. Now that we've talked about the causes of Christian atheism, let's look at the dangers, the dangers that it causes. Living as a Christian atheist is, a da- is dangerous to our soul. It could give us a false assurance that we are saved while we might not be. Let me explain. The Bible clearly teaches, as we've mentioned now many times, that one of the main marks of being a Christian is a repented, transformed, and obedient life to Christ and His Word. It's not that you come to church and, 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 and you shout the, the loudest. First John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6 tells us, we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commands, that means if we have a consistent life of righteousness before God, it's not going to be a perfect life, but it's a life of overall obedience to God and, and a life of repentance before Him when we fall into sin. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He command, commands is a liar. If your lifestyle does not reflect the character of God, then I'm sorry to say, I'm not saying it, the Lord Jesus, the Bible is saying that if, if, if you're in that position, you're a liar. And the truth is not in, in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Wow. In other words, There are other translations like it says that you walk like Jesus walked. And that means you walk in his his footsteps. You're not going to do it perfectly, but you are honoring God with your life. But for the Christian atheist, this is not the case. Their assurance might come from the fact that they have prayed the sinner's prayer at some point in the past. And they look back at that to say, yeah, yes, I'm saved. Doesn't matter how I live now. But I made a, made a decision for Christ back then. That's it. I have assurance of faith. Or maybe from a distorted view of the grace of God. Or from the fact that they are serving Christ in some way. And say, see, I'm, I'm, I'm serving Christ. I come to church and I clean up the sanctuary, I set up the chairs. I'm involved in sports ministry or this ministry or that ministry. See, I'm saved. 
that's not, that's great. And, and I hope we have more people do that. And I'm so glad that we have those ministries. But if that, if you base that on the assurance of your salvation, then think again. That is dangerous, friends. You don't want to be that person that when you appear before the judgment seat of Christ, hear the dreaded words, I never knew you because of a false assurance of salvation. Another danger of Christian atheism is it breeds hypocrisy. It it breeds hypocrisy. Why? Because a Christian atheist claimed to be one thing, a follower of Christ, but his or her daily life reflects something totally different. This is the very definition of hypocrisy, is to present yourself as one thing, kind of put a mask on, but in reality you're something different. That presents a distorted image of Christianity to the world and brings reproach and dishonor to the name of Christ. Do you know what the number one objection to Christianity from the non-believers that I and many, and many other fellow pastors have encountered? Hypocrisy. I must admit that for the most part, they are right. When many of our churches worldwide are filled with Christians, atheists, then unfortunately, hypocrisy will be rampant. And let's face it, we are all capable of it. Every single one of us is capable of putting a mask to be a hypocrite. And so I pray that the Lord would help us as individuals and as a church to protect us from becoming hypocrites. It's only by the grace of God It's only by the Spirit of God we can prevent ourselves from being hypocrites. We have looked at the causes and dangers of Christian atheism. Let's now explore how to overcoming. And this is sort of the application. Take that as the application for the sermon. The first and most important step to do in overcoming Christian atheism is to acknowledge and confess it before the Lord and before other people. Keep people in your life. Brothers and sisters, I'd like to ask each one of you a question that I have asked myself many times this week and that I hope you will give yourself an honest answer to it. Here it goes. Based on what you heard this morning, are you a Christian atheist? Are you a Christian atheist? Am I a Christian atheist? If the Lord convicts you of that, then God's grace is here for you. This is the good news. It's a wonderful news. 
confess that to the Lord. Tell him that even though you claim to be a Christian, you have failed to live a life of obedience and repentance before him. It could be because of easy believism, licentiousness, ministry idolatry, or tens of other reasons that we have not covered today. It does not matter. You will find grace and forgiveness in Him because our God loves you. And our God is slow to anger and quick to forgive. Thanks be to God. Otherwise, all be in big trouble. The second step in overcoming Christian atheism in our lives is to repent from the heart. And what that means is to make a serious commitment to turn away from the life of disobedience to God, from the life of sin that you have been living. The third step to overcome Christian atheism is to avail yourself to the tools of grace that God has given us. Prayer, the Word, and the church. We must read, study, and meditate on Scripture regularly, every day if possible. We must engage in prayers regularly, individually, and corporately. And last but not least, you need to covenant yourself with a gospel-centered local congregation to deepen your fellowship with other believers and participate in the ordinances of the church. Being part of a local church, the family of God, is so critical to your soul. But this is a topic for another sermon. I can, I can go for hours telling you why this, biblically, why this is the case. But know this, friends. The devil fights hard to keep us from joining the local church. He might even use some misguided Christian voices in our lives to keep us away from the local church. Please, please do not listen to them, but go to, to the Scriptures, go to your Bible. Prayer, the Word, and the church are the tools of grace that are given to us by the Father as a gift to grow in the love of God, the love of others, and to live a life of obedience to His Word. My brother, my sister, I promise you, this is a promise from Scriptures, not Pastor Anwar's promise, but it's from Scripture that if you confess, repent, and avail yourself of the tools of grace, you will see the power of God progressively transforming your life from the inside out for your good and for His glory.
Now, I have one more question that originally wasn't part of the sermon that I feel very compelled to ask. It does indirectly relate to Christian atheism. Are you here today feeling like a Christian atheist because of a hidden sin in your life that no one knows about? Perhaps you are afraid to bring it up because of what people might think of you. Or maybe you are concerned about the impact of that sin on you and others if you are to reveal it. I get it. I really do. Nevertheless, I want to encourage you, not not encourage you, I want to plead with you. I want to challenge you as a pastor and a brother in Christ that if that's the case, then bring it to the light. Bring it to the light. Confess it to God and to a fellow believer or your pastor. Do not let the fear of man ruin your walk with God. You need to be brave and trust God's grace and love for you as you face the consequences of your sin. Trust me when I say to you, it is better for you to confess your sin than to be found out. It is better to confess your sin, come clean before God and others, rather than to get caught in that sin. No sin can be secret forever. I've counseled so many people that they thought they're going to hide their sin from God. They were wrong. At some point, this sin will be revealed. And trust me, it is better for you to come clean than to be caught in it. And then repent of it. Allow the Lord and fellow believers to come alongside of you, to comfort you, and to help you overcome it. Few things can wreak heaven, can wreak havoc on your soul like a hidden and unconfessed sin. Well, this has been a heavy and a weighty sermon, I know. But let me close with these encouraging words or verses from Jude 24, 25. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, To the only God, our Father, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so hard to, at times, to preach a message like this. But maybe it's harder even to listen 
to Israel like this. And Lord, we want to respond to you, Lord. Father, we don't want to be hardened in our hearts. And Father, we pray that if there is any sin in us, that if we are living a lie, if we are living a life of disobedience to you, Lord, I pray that you convict us. We know, Lord, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we desire your conviction so that we can repent of these sins. You are such a wonderful, merciful, and loving God that you love us, Lord, perfectly, even when we sin, even when we walk in disobedience to you, Lord, if we are truly your children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.